The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. How is your work life going? Business? Home? Social? How about your health? Could you make some changes? Of course you could, but how and where to start? This is Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. In this program, we'll help you identify and make the changes in your life that need to be made, and by doing so, increase your potential for success. And now, here's your host, Hemda Mizrahi. Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Hemda Mizrahi. Recognition events, surprise parties, and time spent together are some of the ways that we honor the people in our lives and celebrate what they mean to us. Focusing on the present, many of us don't plan for a time when we might not be able to have conversations with loved ones about their or our end-of-life preferences. If you haven't yet engaged in end-of-life planning, an accident, a progressive condition like Alzheimer's, or other circumstances might prevent you from making informed treatment choices for yourself and from positioning your loved ones to effectively advocate for your wishes. Recognizing that having advanced conversations about end-of-life wishes can be difficult and that family members may disagree about the care of a loved one due to differing belief systems, this episode is intended to guide you in this process. I'm joined by Dr. Judith Schwartz, the Clinical Director of End of Life Choices New York, a not-for-profit that provides information, advocacy, and support to incurably and terminally ill patients and their families at no charge. Dr. Schwartz is an expert on ethical and professional issues related to patient self-determination and informed end-of-life decision-making. In consulting with suffering adults and their loved ones, she facilitates choices that reflect patients' wishes and values. Dr. Schwartz, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm so appreciative that we can benefit from your guidance on a very sensitive and crucial issue. And speaking of that, it'd be wonderful to start just by talking about why end-of-life conversations are so important. Right. And I and in doing that, I, I want to talk a little bit about what we're talking about, actually. When we talk about advanced medical planning, we're talking about having conversations with those people who are important to us about outcomes or choices that you either would want or wouldn't want as the end of life nears. And these are hard conversations to have because many people would like to pretend that they're actually never going to die. And um, for those people who actually think that death is is optional, they're never going to want to have these conversations. But I can tell you that their family members who are left having to make decisions in the absence of having had a conversation are in a terrible, terrible, terrible position. They will feel badly whatever they decide to do because the physician is going to come out and say to them, what do you want us to do? Here are your options. We could do this. We could do this. I can't tell you exactly what's going to work or what's not going to work. So the point of this 
conversation, I think, that that um, I'm hoping to make you a little bit more comfortable with is the notion of imagining outcomes that you would find intolerable and that you want your loved ones to know about. And the best way to do that is by having a conversation with people that you know and that you love and choosing one of them to be your healthcare agent. We're talking about completing advanced directives. Now, advanced directives are just documents that you don't need a lawyer for um, that either appoints a person who will be the decision maker, that's who the physicians will turn to in a time of crisis or emergency, or you can complete a written document called a living will. And a living will sort of stipulates what you want, what you don't want, in the event that you become incurably ill, not likely to recover, or unconscious permanently. So why is this important? Because if you don't write these documents, if you don't have conversations with your loved ones, even though you think they know what you want, in fact, they're not adequately prepared. Because a lot of the decisions that have to be made are time-sensitive, um, they, uh, as I said, are, are based on incomplete information. It's not a black and white, do we do this, do we not do this? And the fact is that um, there might be other people in the room with the physicians who have different ideas about what's the right thing to do here. And without exception, when physicians or the healthcare team see that there's conflict amongst family members, They pull back from the discussion and they say, you know what, we can't do anything here until you guys decide amongst yourselves what you want us to do. In the meantime, we will continue to treat. And for some people, that might be okay. For most people, it is not. And it's not what they want. Dr. Schwartz, do you know if advanced directives and also living wills are used abroad as well or just in the United States? I don't know what they're called, and, I don't, and I'm not sure that I know the answer to that, but I know that always the healthcare team is going to turn to the family. And they're going to turn to the family whether there are completed documents or not, and they're going to want to speak to the person who knows the values and beliefs, spiritual or otherwise, uh, and wishes of this now incapacitated person. So whether the, the, the country recognizes a, a formal kind of, of documentation or not, they will always turn to the family. Although even as I say that, some countries are a bit more paternalistic in what they expect their physicians to do than, than is America. In America, autonomy at the moment is pretty much king and queen, so that um, physicians want to share decision-making with the family. They don't want to take over. I can't be sure that that's, in fact, the case in in many European countries. So I I, I can't really speak to that specifically. It still underscores the point, though, that having conversations with the people who are closest to you about what your preferences are is essential. Right. If people have access to a computer, they can go online and get very good sort of guides to having these conversations because lots of times there's resistance either from the patient, the person who should be completing the document, or from family members who say, oh, this is too depressing to talk about. I can't imagine um, that you would want to have me worry about things like this, so let's not talk about it because it would just upset me. And frankly, 
you know, we don't want our kids to be upset, right? But but the way this has to be reframed and understood as this is a gift that you're giving to your loved ones so that they know what to do in an emergency. And if they have that information, they're so much more comfortable dialoguing with the healthcare team and, and will feel that they are honoring your requests and your wishes rather than what they might want for you or for themselves. It sounds like it also prevents conflict amongst family members and the kind of discomfort and pain that comes from not really knowing how they can honor their loved one. Right. What I always try to do is get everybody in the room together. All of the adult kids with the person who is completing this documentation after we've had some conversations individually, and then I try to talk to some of the kids individually and then get everybody together. And if you can't do it physically, you can do it by conference call, right? So you have everybody on the phone. And what's important is that grandpa say who he has appointed to be his agent and why. And it's not because he loves that one better than the other ones, but that that one might be better prepared either professionally or emotionally to be able to do the hard work of advocating. Uh, And the job of all the other family members is to hear that, to understand, and then to support the agent who is imposing with support from them grandpa's wishes. That's an interesting point. Then there are a lot of practical considerations that might come into play Mm -hmm. in the choice of an agent. Absolutely. It's not necessarily who's the oldest, and it isn't necessarily who's the lawyer. It's who's best equipped and who's available. Which which part of the country do you live on? We're talking about in an emergency situation. You can do it by phone, but boy, is it ever better if you have a person there with, with the documentation and can dialogue with the physicians. The other thing that I see happen sometimes, which is really very stressful, a decision will have been made to complete a healthcare proxy or a durable power of attorney for healthcare, which appoints a person in both of those cases. That person may have been chosen years ago. That person may have moved away from the, the, the patient. And some other family member is the constant caregiver because they're there. Often it's because they're a daughter as well, you know. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden there's a crisis and the person who knows the loved one's wishes best because they have been working with them and caring for them intimately for the last three or four years is legally, supposedly, legally prescribed from being able to make decisions. That's a horrible situation. So what I really recommend is um, you complete an advanced directive but you, that's not the end of it. It's an ongoing discussion. And the, the paper is only as good as the conversation that has preceded the signing of the paper. So even if you've completed an advanced directive or appointed somebody years ago, what we talk about are the five Ds, the reason and the time to take that document out and look at it again. Okay, so I'm going to give you the five Ds. This needs to be done once every decade. So once every 10 years, if nothing else has changed, you just initial it and date it, and that's fine. If there's been a death in the family, if somebody close to you has died, that may change the way you feel about the wishes that you have suggested that you want your agent to impose. Or if you've had some new physical problems, some health issues, if there's been a decline in 
the quality of your life. You want to look at what was important to you before. Maybe it's changed now. Um, if there's been a divorce, most people think that their spouse should be their health care agent. If there's been a divorce, you'll probably want to change that. Uh, and the final thing is, is there a new diagnosis? So that's a little bit close to decline. But if any of those things have happened, you need to take that document out and look at it again. And every time you do and just check in with your healthcare agent, it's going to make them feel better too, that they will feel well prepared to advocate for you. Um, because your your wishes change. You You think... Sometimes what you think was an intolerable situation as you're living with it, it's not so bad. On the other hand, sometimes when you live to the end of a debilitating disease, it is intolerable. And, and those are things that you get to decide about. So I think that that's an important thing to consider. So staying current with your own preferences based on major life events that might have occurred or really who is the person who is closest in contact with you and is better aligned with your wishes. Right, right. And, and there's, there's nothing, I'll tell you there's something else, even as I'm saying this, I was going to say you could change who your agent is and you, could, you can change your mind at any time. There are a lot of people that might be listening to this that say, I don't have any kids. I don't have any family. Who am I going re- to appoint? Sometimes neighbors you know, elderly neighbors who've known each other forever, can, I'll, do, I'll be yours if you'll be mine, can work out just fine. In the absence of being able to appoint somebody, complete a living will. Complete a narrative description of what's important to you, who you are, what you want your healthcare professional to know about you and your wishes, what you think is important in your medical history, and the outcomes you want to prevent. It's a very good tool. It's not quite as good as a person, but it's better than nothing. So your voice really stands, and you have this option. If you don't feel comfortable really choosing one person, you can choose yourself, so to speak. That's right. That's right. That's right. We have a couple of minutes left, so maybe in that time, is there a story that you might be able to share related to the key point that you're making about going through this process and some of the consequences that people might experience if they don't have these conversations? Well, um, I didn't think you were going to say that. I thought you were going to say to ask me to tell you about values changing. And I'm thinking about people, for example, who have um, Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, and they think that if they're ever having to live in a wheelchair, they would rather be dead. And then they're in a wheelchair. And they realize, actually, that's not so bad. That's not so bad so long as their care is not too burdensome on their loved ones. Because that's often what the issue is, is how is this affecting my loved ones? Can they continue to care for me without being so overburdened that I'm feeling too guilty about what my situation is? And that, and that again, is a, a question of dialoguing and negotiating, because this can be very, very difficult. So you might discover actually that you feel differently when you're actually in the situation. That's right. And we see this all the time. Many people think that they know how they will feel and that they absolutely are convinced that they will want to hasten their death. Death is permanent. Life can become quite precious as you get close to the end. And you just don't know. And you should be open to the possibility that your wishes may change and you need to be heard. That's an important thing. You need to be heard brought up an important point which I just want to touch on which is the burden that your care might place on the people you love yes yes 
So that's an, um, that also filters into the decision-making process. Absolutely. It does. We're going to go to a quick commercial. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the responsibility that your loved ones may have and how that might affect your decision and also discuss special issues related to Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Schwartz will also provide guidance on how you can approach end-of-life conversations with your loved ones. Stay with us to learn more. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. Welcome back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, joined by Dr. Judith Schwartz, an expert in informed end-of-life decision-making. Dr. Schwartz addressed the importance of speaking with loved ones about your end-of-life preferences and the consequences of not having these conversations. In this segment, we'll focus on special issues related to Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Schwartz will also provide you with tactical strategies on how you can communicate with family members about end-of-life issues. So where we left off off was we were talking about factors that play into the decision-making about end-of-life care. Mm -hmm. And you brought up the point about the responsibilities that your loved ones may face. Mm -hmm. If you have a serious or debilitating condition like ALS, for example, is there something more you can say about that? The goal always when somebody's living with an incurable and progressive disease is to 
encourage informed decision-making. But even as I say that, uh, even though I may think that's absolutely the right way to go, we have to be respectful of the fact that not everybody is able to do that. Um, and you have to be patient with both patients and family members. So um, if you know there are going to be decisions that have to be made, for example, somebody who has ALS eventually is going to have to decide whether they want to have tube feedings and whether they want to be connected to a ventilator because eventually they will lose the ability to breathe and and chew and eat um, safely. It is much, much better to have a thoughtful decision about that, a, a thoughtful discussion about that ahead of time before an emergency requires some kind of emergency intervention. Um, that having been said, it's important for people to realize that even in an emergency, anything that has been started can be stopped if it, if the burdens of living with that intervention are intolerable to the patient. You don't know what it's like to be trached. You don't know what it's like to have an endotracheal tube put in. And maybe if you just have some acute problem, it can be relieved by very aggressive pulmonary care. Uh, And then you get to decide whether or not you want to continue with that intervention. That's the job of the physicians, to be sure that a patient understands that they have the right to withdraw at any time. By the same token, family members have to understand that there will be a great deal of care that will be required. So that goes into the decision-making Um, if the family physically can't provide that care, somebody else has to. So you have to know what kind of government support is available in terms of aids and support, or, or will the person need to be institutionalized so that they can be kept safe? These are really hard conversations to have, but unless you can anticipate and know the kinds of down the road decisions that are going to have to be made, um, you're going to be shocked and overwhelmed by those decisions. So anybody that has any kind of a chronic and progressive disease, and it doesn't even have to be as life-threatening as ALS, but it could be chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you need to know about a ventilator because eventually a ventilator will probably be something that's offered. You need to think about it ahead of time, and there needs to be a plan for a crisis. If you can't breathe, what's going to be done? Who do we call? Who's going to be available? Who's going to relieve that kind of distress? So the more upfront discussion there is, the better. And a lot of these are really kind of complicated decisions. So they need to be guided by a healthcare professional. But in my experience, if the patient and the family don't know the questions to ask of their physician, they're not going to get enough information to make an informed choice. And oftentimes physicians are as reluctant to have these end-of-life discussions with their patients as some family members might be, because they don't want to, quote, take away hope. Now, I would suggest that there's always hope, and there always should be hope when when you're living with an incurable and progressive disease. But maybe if a cure is not a realistic thing to hope for, a really good death is something that can be hoped for and should be worked towards. And everybody gets to decide what for them is I don't really talk about good deaths. I talk about least bad deaths possible under the circumstances. And that's my goal always. It seems like you brought out a lot of realities that people wind up facing 
whether they're addressing them in advance or they're, they wind up in a crisis, as you're right. saying. Right. So it's helpful to really think through some of this as much as you can because it, it sounds like there's a lot of research that might be involved and consultation with experts. That's right. Otherwise, there will be what I refer to as death by intensive care unit where elderly people are trapped in an aggressive treatment center, not that they want to be there or even that the family necessarily wants them there, but nobody knows how to stop. And once you get started, it's very hard to know when to say, okay, this is ridiculous. We're, We're just torturing and there might, be, there might be a granddaughter who thinks that, and there might be somebody else that thinks, no, grandpa's always been a fighter. He should give it, be given a chance, and somebody else who thinks God's going to save him. So these are, this is not the time for those kinds of decisions. You should only have people in the ICU that want to be in the ICU, and that's fine if they want to be there. It seems that you're describing a potentially very supportive experience. It's a way for someone to feel like they're not alone. You're in this collaborative process and there's nothing more intimate that you can talk about really than end of life. Absolutely. And it's if you can have that experience where you've you're connecting even more and bonding even more and the person you're supporting really gets to feel that sense of connection and alignment. Like you said that seems like a wonderful gift that you can give to to that person and also to yourself. We have a lot of data that supports the fact that um, people say that they want to die at home and they end up dying in hospitals. People say uh, that they want to make sure, 60% actually of people say that making, uh, making sure that families are not burdened by tough decisions is extremely important, but way less than that 60% have ever had those discussions with families. And this one is really striking. 80% of people say that if, if they were seriously ill, they would want to talk to their doctor about wishes for medical treatment toward the end of life. 7% report having those conversations. And do you know now, the federal government will actually pay for physicians to have a conversation about end-of-life wishes with physicians. Uh, But physicians are just as ill-prepared and ill-trained to have many of these conversations as their patients and families, which is very sad. So what do you recommend in situations like that where it's difficult to have the conversation with the physician? What resources do you recommend? Obviously, your organization is designed for situations like that. And if someone is abroad, do you have recommendations Obviously, the ideal situation is to have a decent relationship with your long-term care physician and to make um, uh, end-of-life choices a part of, if not, certainly not every single meeting you have with your physician, but once a year, it ought to be something that's checked in. Just like I was saying with the five Ds, once a year, you should be sure that your physician has all of the appropriate up-to-date documents And in New York State, there are lots of documents that people can go by just going online. And I would suggest that people in Europe and other than America can can write uh, a question. Do you Google in Europe? Absolutely. (laughs) Google is universal. (laughs) So you Google advanced care planning in Germany. What forms are available? What what can I download from the Internet? What conversations should I be having there? There's lots of there are lots of tools out there. Um, there's, there's a really important one uh, here in the, in the States, and you could probably gain access to it if you just Google uh, the Conversation Project, 
theconversationproject.org. It was originated by a, a woman, Ellen Goodman, who was a journalist in Boston, who realized, even though she was very close to her mother and they had lots of wonderful conversations, as her mother got increasingly demented and decisions had to be made, she realized she didn't know what her mother would want done. And she realized, oh my goodness, if I'm as ill-prepared, and I thought I was all over this, my gosh, other people must be as well. It's a wonderful resource. It's got lots of how you get started and how how adults can say to their, how grownups can say to their adult kids, you know, remember that movie we saw together about that terrible thing that happened to Nancy Cruzan or the, the, the book that we read together or remember what happened to Aunt Flossie and nobody knew what she wanted. I don't want that to happen to me and I want you to know what I want. Can we have a conversation about this? There are lots of ways you can do this and sometimes you have to be a little bit firm. You also have to recognize that just because you've been thinking about it doesn't mean that your kids are ready to have this conversation the first time. So you then make a date for when we can have this conversation when you've thought about it a little bit more. But I think we should move on to Alzheimer's because um, Alzheimer's now is increasing in ways that are absolutely extraordinary, at least in this country. And I suspect it's true in Europe as well, because as people get older and live longer, um, they are not dying of the diseases that used to end life quickly. Like, remember, we used to refer to pneumonia as the old man's friend no longer because of antibiotics and because healthcare has improved the longevity of life, sadly, often at the expense of the quality of life. And what we know is the number of uh, Americans who will get Alzheimer's disease will increase each year as the number of people who are older than 65 increases every year. We know that one in eight, which is 13% of all those who are 65 or older have Alzheimer's disease. And, also, and Alzheimer's disease accounts for 60 to 80% of all dementias out there. Almost half of those who are over 85 have Alzheimer's disease. And this age group, over 85, is the most rapidly expanding age group of all uh, in this country. Um, I tell you, the folks that I talk to, Many are so much more afraid of losing their minds than they are of having cancer. By comparison, cancer is a walk in the park. You know, it's, it's a trajectory that's pretty short. The problem with Alzheimer's disease is dying from Alzheimer's disease takes a really long time. And on average, um, seven years after diagnosis, and many people live with symptoms of cognitive impairment that they've been afraid to acknowledge or discuss with anybody for many years before they're diagnosed. So many people live for many years longer than seven years, right? I know um, a family where the mother has been in a hospital bed, absolutely uh, immobilized, for 14 years with Alzheimer's disease, and yet she still opens her mouth, and she still seems to really like the glop that her wonderful aides are putting in her mouth every day. Um, One question around that. What are the implications for end-of-life decision-making? The problem is that by the time um, people get to the terminal stage of Alzheimer's disease, they've lost decision-making capacity. 
And uh, making end-of-life decisions requires decisional capacity, which means that you understand the consequences of a choice, that you make the choice based on information that you're given, and that you understand the risks and benefits and alternatives. Um, And somebody who has been living with Alzheimer's disease is going to lose that ability at some point. The question is when. So there's a window of opportunity for decision-making. And increasingly, I'm hearing from people that say, I want to avoid the last years and months of this disease because I don't want to die in the terminal stage. And terminal for Alzheimer's disease means that uh, you have lost the ability to recognize loved ones, you can't communicate by speech, you can't ambulate, and you are unable to maintain bowel and bladder control. That's terminal. And people live for years after that. So this is a horror for some people, and absolute, not for everybody, and not for all family members, but it is a horror for many people, and it is indeed a fate worse than death. So those are the folks that I'm talking to who are saying, you know what, this is not the way I've lived my whole life, and I'm not going to die this way. What can I do now to control the circumstances of my dying? Because I've been told that I have early onset Alzheimer's. I still have all of my marbles, and I want you to know that I intend to die the way I've lived, which is in control and in charge. So for those folks, um, there are only two options that exist. One is to complete a very, very well-drafted advanced directive saying that when you lose the ability to feed yourself, which will happen, and you lose decisional capacity, you do not want to be hand-fed by anybody. So the underlying point really is looking at engaging the window of opportunity, and there's a lot of precision here that comes in establishing those advanced directives. That's right. That's right. And family support. Absolutely crucial is family support for these kinds of decisions. Thank you. We're going to take two for a brief commercial. When we return, we'll talk more about tactics for having conversations with family members Dr. Schwartz will share narratives about both the challenges and rewards of making informed end-of-life decisions. We'll be right back. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace, Every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. 
Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. We're back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi with Dr. Judith Schwartz, an expert in end-of-life decision-making. Dr. Schwartz discussed special issues related to Alzheimer's, and where we left off was we started to talk about some of the challenges of establishing advanced directives in cases like Alzheimer's or dementia. Would you like to add a little bit more on that topic? Yeah, I, I want to be sure that uh, people understand that these are complicated choices that that somebody who's been newly diagnosed with Alzheimer's is making And what they're saying in this written advance directive, this written narrative saying, I don't want to be fed, hand fed, where nobody's talking about artificial nutrition and hydration, of course, that can be refused by the healthcare agent and the the patient should indicate that they don't want artificial nutrition and hydration to sustain them. But people can be fed for quite a long time. And what this directive says is, I do not want to be hand-fed. I understand the consequences of that choice, which will be to hasten my death, and that's what I want. But what I think is important that people understand is that even when this is well-drafted and even when, say, a lawyer signs off and and the family's supportive and and everybody knows about this wish, there are many settings in which this will not be honored by, for example, a long-term care facility where they have regulations, federal regulations in this country, that say you have to be sure to feed our elderly patients. And if too many patients lose weight, that must mean you're not taking care of people and they're not being fed properly. It's a tension that is clearly a problem. The other issue that I think must be discussed ahead of time with both the patient and the family is what happens if the patient seems to want to eat? What if when a spoon is put to their mouth, their mouth opens and they smack their lips like they're really hungry? What is the family to do? That's a terrible, terrible position to be in. And We need to know as best we can that that has been considered by this patient. And they've said, even if that happens physiologically, I believe it's a reflex. I'm not going to change my mind. Please don't feed me. I don't want to live any longer in this condition. Still, I would acknowledge that it's a very hard choice. Um, when, When somebody's in an institutional setting, often they have to be transferred to home and cared for at home where you don't have the exterior government regulations. But even so, it's a hard, hard decision to make. The other choice that doesn't require so much from other people is when a person is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and they begin to lose their cognitive capacity, 
while they still have decision-making capabilities and can make an informed choice for themselves, they can elect to begin to stop eating and drinking as a means to be able to hasten their own dying. Now, morally, this is less complicated for family members to support because you have somebody saying, I am telling you, I don't want to eat. And each day that person gets to decide whether they will continue to fast or not. The person dies of dehydration. Usually it takes 10 to 14 days. They need to have access to palliative oversight. A physician needs to be able to support them. The family has to support them, and they will require caregiving support because they'll be too weak to get out of bed. But I think that ethically, this is, a, this is an easier choice to support because you know that the person hasn't changed their mind. You know it's still the same person. It's still dad saying, I can't live this way. Yes, this is hard, but I don't care. I'm happy to do this. And I'll tell you, people have been dying this way for thousands of years. When somebody knew it was, quote, their time, they would just get into bed, turn their face to the wall and say, that's it. And death was expected to come when it came. And it wasn't scary. And the grandkids were still playing on the floor when grandma just was in bed. And everybody loved her and took care of her, but nobody was demanding that she stay alive for anybody else's benefit. So I think that this is a way of looking at this kind of choice that people make. They have to be aware of the window closing because if they lose decisional capacity, nobody can do that to them or for them. They have to have been make it, they have to make the decision for themselves or they have to have completed one of these very specific advanced directives. But this is pushing the envelope. I'll tell you, this is, this is new. People never thought about this because people used to die more quickly. Now that people are living longer, the boomers are saying, oh, no, I watched my grandfather die horribly of Alzheimer's. Or my, or my mother, it took her 10 years to die. I don't want that to happen to me. What can I do to prevent that? So those are the conversations that we're having now. And those are what are driving those conversations. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking that there are many things I would not have anticipated, including in a conversation with a loved one. Yeah. And I would guess that a lot of people are in a situation where even when you do advance directives, when you're actually in those moments of needing to make the decisions, you say, we didn't cover this in our conversation. Yes, yes. yes. Who would have anticipated that someone would seem as though they want to be eating? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because there are reflexes that, that, that continue long after the cognitive ability to make an informed choice about prolonging the dying process or prolonging living with advanced dementia. And believe me, not everybody wants to do this. Not everybody thinks that they should take steps to hasten their dying. But increasingly, the people that contact me and my organization or, quote, right to die organizations are hearing increasingly uh, about these kinds of concerns. What, what are the recommendations would you give for having the conversations? I, I want to um, come back to that. And I'm glad you asked me because there's another resource that in America, anyhow, I think is just marvelous. It was created by the American Bar Association by their uh, Commission on Law and Aging. So if you, if you, if you type into the Google thing, <laughs> ABA, uh, Commission on Law and Aging, you'll get this wonderful series of 10 different tools 
that you can open individually. And they are wonderful, wonderful guides to how you choose an agent. Who would be the best person to choose for your agent? What kinds of decisions will this agent be expected to make? And how can you best prepare the agent to make those decisions? For example, one of the things that it talks about is um, how do you weigh the odds of survival, right? So these are the kinds of decisions that are made in the hospital all the time, right? So if we try this intervention, um, for example, what they talk about is imagine that you're seriously ill and the doctors are recommending treatment for your illness, but the treatment has very severe side effects, such as severe pain, nausea, vomiting, whatever. So the question for the patient to, to look at in terms of this tool is, um, what, whether you would have this intervention knowing that it will cause you great deals of pain, would you, are you absolutely sure that you'd want it? Would you want to try it for a trial or do you not want it? And it goes through, uh, are you very sure? Are you moderately sure? Are you not sure at all? And it's a, t- you can fill this, this worksheet out and it's something more that your agent will know, even if you don't talk about it specifically. And there are, there are a few other things that I thought um, are wonderful. Are some conditions worse than death? I mean, we always think, we've been trained to think that death is the worst thing possible. Not necessarily. And so it's a series of questions that you should answer for yourself so that you can inform the person that you hope to make be your decision maker. And I think it's interesting. As you read through these, you think, gosh, these are really hard. If they're hard for you, can you imagine how much harder they would be for your loved ones? And particularly if they don't agree? So some of the, some of the questions that are asked... Um, uh, and it and has to do with, do you want treatment? Do you want to continue to try to live under the following circumstances? And so one is, uh, if you're no longer able to recognize your loved ones, or if you can't communicate with your loved ones, would you want to continue to have treatment? Um, if you can't respond to requests or commands, if you can't do anything for yourself, if you can't care for yourself and you're entirely dependent for your physical and, and all other care on others, would you want to continue to be treated? So, so these are a, a series of questions that actually ask people to go to their worst case scenario, which is awful in some ways. And yet again, it's a wonderful gift to, to provide to your loved ones. So, I mean, what I often hear is I hear from adult kids that say, my dad won't talk about this. He's, he's had progressive emphysema for years and years and years. He can't walk across the room without getting so short of breath. He has to have oxygen all the time, but he won't talk about his end of life wishes or, or anything about dying. Those are really hard situations. Those are really hard situations because there's, there's the resistance there is based on probably fear and probably um, all of that kind of magical thinking, you know, there's a part of that that if we talk about it, it'll happen. You know, it's mm, like bad superstition. Karma. Yeah, bad karma. If you talk about death, it's going to happen right away. So we'll just pretend it isn't going to happen. But again, the, what, what I say to, to, to those adult kids, particularly those that have a good relationship with their, with their parent, is you would be helping me. Because I'm going to have to decide, and I don't know what you would want me to do. And the guilt from that is just horrific. And you live with it forever. You live with it forever. If you've 
been forced to make decisions that you're not sure about and that you think might have prolonged the suffering of your loved one. It's a terrible, it's a terrible burden. And, and listen, I'm not above trying to use a little guilt back to see <laughs> if it will help open the door a little bit because somebody's going to have to decide. Somebody's going to have to make these decisions. I would think also having these conversations can alleviate some of the fears. That's right. That's right. Because you feel that there's more control. You have more impact right. on your own reality. Yes. Well, and you're taking responsibility, actually, for, um, as best you can, for an ending that would be acceptable to you. Um, and, not, and, and this, realistically, not everybody can do this. It's an amazing opportunity also to get to know your loved one, yes. whom you feel so yes. close to. And there's so many things that you don't know about them. Right. And if, and if you're living with somebody who's denying that they're ever going to die, you can't have those conversations that are so important um, that you can't get a chance to ask the questions. That when people die suddenly, you know, some people think, oh, isn't that wonderful? They didn't suffer. They died suddenly. Well, maybe, but on the other hand, you didn't get to say goodbye. You didn't get to tell them how important they are in your life. You didn't get to apologize for that one thing that you can't forget that you did years and years ago. All of that, um, to have these conversations brings people together. Um, And I, I can tell you about one that I had recently, which I just thought was wonderful. Um, I'd been contacted over a year ago by a young woman who lived out in California. And she had found some of the articles that I'd written about stopping eating and drinking online. And so she contacted me and asked if I could talk to her family and her mother, because her mother was considering stopping eating and drinking. But she didn't know whether she could or she should or whether it was illegal, or whether it was suicide, or, or even how to begin to have that conversation, right? So that was a year ago. I said, of course, I'd be happy to talk to them. A whole year went by, and then the daughter contacted me again. She said, now we're ready. Could you possibly? And we arranged a conference call with two of her four brothers, the sister who was there with mom, and this wonderful 89-year-old woman who all her life had been an English scholar, and loved reading more than anything in the world. She lived now in an assisted living facility. She'd lived independently for quite some time, but now she needed to be in an assisted living because she had advanced Parkinson's. She was wheelchair bound. She kept falling, so therefore she had to be in a wheelchair. And she had advanced macular degeneration, so she couldn't do the one thing that she loved doing, which is reading. So we had an amazing conversation about this option after I got her to tell me what her life was like and what she was afraid of and what she was hoping for and what she wanted to avoid. And that as the basis for our conversation, I explained to her clinically what the process was like, what she should expect, what kind of support she would need, uh, who she could expect it from, and The sons, several of whom were attorneys, had some very serious questions they felt they had to ask. Everybody was trying to protect their loved mom. And the daughter who was right there, um, heard. we we, we heard each other. And that's the important thing. Everybody got heard. 
And I got a lovely email back from the daughter afterwards being so, so appreciative. Um, And I could tell that there was just nothing but love in that conversation with the family and with the kids and with this wonderful woman. And uh, so now she's trying to find a month that's nobody's birthday. So Mm -hmm. she wants to know whether August would be a good month to die. Mm. So that I've, I've felt that that had been a lovely experience for all of them. Sharing that amazing closeness. Yes. And making it something also, like you're saying, that's really honoring the person. And, you know, the, the, particularly some kids feel that their only job is to protect rather than to actually hear what mom wants and what she can and, and wants to do. So I, I think that sometimes adult kids need some help with that. And also patients need to know that they actually get to decide for themselves. Mom shouldn't decide for them. Um, we should stop trying to protect each other and start listening to each other and, and, and being open about that. And that's a beautiful note to wrap up on. Thank you so much. So we'll leave you with an encouragement about granting your own wishes and also granting the wishes of your loved one. Thank you very much for having me. If you'd like to discuss your clinical questions, Dr. Schwartz invites you to contact her at Judy, J-U-D-Y, at endoflifechoicesny.org. You can also find out more about End of Life Choices New York through endoflifechoicesny.org. If you have unanswered questions about today's episode, I welcome you to email me at hosthemda at gmail.com. We'll post responses through our social media sites, which you can access by following me on Twitter at Hemda Mizrahi and liking us on Facebook at Turn the Page Radio. Until next week, remember to make the grass greener where you are. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, inviting you to turn the page. Thank you for tuning in to our program. Turn the Page can be heard live every Friday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week's show, enjoy your weekend and make one change in your life before then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.